Well, hello and welcome to uh, another episode of GUcast. Uh, this is Declan Murphy, urologist uh, here at uh, Peter Mac, back with you again, uh, along with my co-host, uh, Dr. Renu Epen, uh, urologist here at Peter Mac. Uh, good morning, Renu. Good morning, Declan. Great to be back after a small little break for EAU, really. Yes, yes. We took a little bit of time off for virtual EAU last week, so we didn't post a podcast. Um, so we're on catch-up mode now. We got a few great episodes coming up uh, in the next uh, week or two, especially today's one, which I've been looking forward yes. to for weeks, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll introduce our guest uh, very shortly but we're also adjusting this morning renew to uh, not just lockdown again but it's now mandatory masks for all of melbourne um, Absolutely. yeah i suppose for clinical staff it's not so bad but i think uh, the rest of society uh, here in melbourne since midnight last night it's mandatory uh, the whole place has got to wear masks uh, all the time when you're out and about really so uh, yeah here we go just More have to get used to it Anyway, uh, without any further ado, I'm so happy to be welcoming back an uh, uh, old friend and colleague uh, of mine, uh, Dr. Paul Cathcart uh, from London. Um, uh, Paul and I go back years and years and years and years um, uh, uh, for many different reasons, but I suppose the um, pivotal relationship we had was 10 years ago uh, when um, I had just moved back to uh, Melbourne as a consultant and, and Paul was down here doing a fellowship. Um, and we share lots of great memories since then. Um, he's now a consultant urologist at Guy's St. Thomas is um, in London, my old alma mater from a training and from a consultant point of view. Uh, and it gives us a great pleasure to welcome Paul uh, to the podcast this morning. Um, hello, Paul. Good morning. Good morning welcome, man. Paul. It's lovely to have you here on Zoom and to be seeing your happy, smiling face as ever. Um, uh, how are things in London? Uh, returning to some degree of normality. So the last couple of months, um, obviously with COVID, it's been incredibly different uh, and difficult but we're beginning to get back to some sort of normality from a prostate cancer point of view anyway yeah and look there's a few things we want to t- talk to you about and, and and later in the in the program we're going to talk about uh, the, the uk um, national prostate cancer audit uh, which you were one of the instigators one of the investigators on and, and is producing some very interesting data uh, but the other topic uh, renew we want to talk to paul about is uh, salvage uh, robot prostatectomy that's our main focus for today Absolutely. You have a lot of experience in this area, Paul, so we're hoping to draw on some of that today. Indeed. And and so uh, I recall visiting you last year or the year before, I can't remember, coming to your theatre, uh, your operating room at Guy's Hospital, and you said to me something along the lines of, you know, it's it's uh, it's my goal now to just specialise in salvage robotic prostatectomy, which is a, a terrible form of self-flagellation, if you ask <laughs> me, as I do a lot of that operation. But it's not the sort of procedure that a lot of urologists will, uh, you know, put their hand up or fly the flag and say, send me all your salvage prostatectomies uh, so I was very struck uh, by that comment Paul and of course we we know you're a terrific surgeon we, we remember you from your time here as a as a fellow uh, being an outstanding young surgeon but you have developed a very uh, specialized practice in a very big center in London um, uh, in uh, salvage prostatectomy so tell us a little bit about that journey uh, how, how that has evolved so um, it's sort of uh, I was got back from Melbourne and, and my main aim was to sort of uh, become as good as I possibly could at primary prostatectomy and as you're doing more and more uh, you start to get referrals this one's a bit tricky this one's you know a previous TURP or a HOLEP uh, and then I was in a big center uh, where they would do a lot of focal therapy and uh, some of these patients were starting to develop recurrent disease so they naturally came to see me I had a as part of my background as my training I actually did a little bit of focal therapy. So I, I was trained in, in, in that approach so I could talk to the patients the same sort of way event that they have been prior to that. In fact, I've recruited some of the patients to some of the focal therapy trials. 
So um, that was quite easy. And then as I took on more focal therapy patients, um, I was increasingly uh, interested in, in seeing patients who had recurrent disease after radiation because I, they were a patient group that I actually seen when I was doing focal therapy. So they would come and see us for focal, hypo, or cryo. Uh, and it seemed a natural solution uh, potentially to move on to doing salvage prostatectomy in those patients. They, those patients have very few options post-radiation and um, very few patients with recurrent disease after radiation uh, actually get uh, the option of uh, salvage radical therapy. So it seemed a natural sort of thing to move into treating patients with recurrent disease after radiation. And in fact, the, the patients who have had previous radiation uh, and that you offer those patients salvage radical prostatectomy, they're amongst the, by far the most grateful patients, incredibly grateful, because they've always been turned down by numerous urologists. Um, uh, it's too difficult or, or, or it's not going to benefit them. Uh, and they're the ones that, that feel the greatest, that you've given them a chance potentially of cure. So they're actually the nicest patients to, to look after. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Paul, can I just touch back on focal therapy for a second? Um, I mean, that's still quite a new area. Um, can you give us a sense of how, what proportion of these patients tend to recur after focal therapy? So, uh, so you've got patients who recur who then undergo a second focal treatment. Part of the consenting process for focal is to have potentially uh, more than one treatment. Um, I see about one to two percent apparently of patients who have recurrent disease after focal. So, a very small minority of patients come to me. Um, many patients have recurrent disease or end up and have further focal or have radiation. So, relatively few come to me. Uh, probably a maximum of about three or four percent really not a big number so this tells us a bit about i suppose the topic we want to talk about is selection criteria for a salvage prostatectomy because you know even in expert hands we know salvage prostatectomy clearly is more morbid or is potentially more morbid uh, than a a primary prostatectomy so who how do you select the patients paul and many patients do very well after focal therapy some of them are quite you know relatively old or have more comorbidities by the time they might have a suggestion of failure so not everyone's going to need a salvage prostatectomy so could you tell us a little bit about the sort of patients you might select out uh, number one and number two um i you've i see you've recently published a paper on on psma pet ct um uh, using thp psma so i'm interested in in your experience using psma for biochemical recurrence uh, after focal therapy yeah so i'll take the so uh, so the, when you're deciding on who to do a salvage on, obviously life expectancy is key. So they need to have at least 10 years life expectancy. Um, they need to have, um, they need to be relatively fit, not to no previous real abdominal surgery if possible. Um, most patients um, will have had a basal uh, treatment. So if you, the, the focal therapist will very rarely um, treat apical tumors with focal therapy. So most of them are basal tumors. And because of that, you can go very wide uh, at that point. Um, so the, I would not operate on N1 disease. I think that's, that, that's definitely not a good option. But I'm more than happy to operate on T3B or T3A disease. So it needs to be surgically resectable. Uh, obviously, no invasion of the rectum, which is very, very rarely seen in, in invasion of the rectum so you need to be able to try and do get it with clear margins you know, have a good life expectancy uh, minimal uh, ablation near the apex which i say is often not the case because they very rarely have apical ablation um, they're the main main options really 
Paul, you and PSMA pet, all the, all the patients get pets. Uh, anybody, yeah. if you're going to offer salvage surgery, I think everyone should get a PSMA pet scan before you offer them surgery. And if I look at some of the patients who have recurred following focal therapy, that was when we were using coline PET, and that seems uh, the accuracy of that sensitivity is very poor. So I think since we've moved to PSMA PET, uh, our, our patient selection is being much better. We're, we're identifying the occult metastatic patient, and obviously I'm, I'm not going to operate and so presumably you're using PET at the sign of biochemical recurrence and then doing, you're still biopsying these, I presume, before a prostatectomy, Paul. Do you require uh, yeah. histological proof? So you do a PSMA PET and then do a targeted biopsy based on the PSMA PET. Yeah, and the PSMA PET is incredibly helpful, not just for distant uh, metastatic staging, but also for recurrent disease. So MRI scan can be can be incredibly difficult to interpret, even mm. uh, multi-parametric MRI post-focal therapy. So the use of PET can be quite helpful in these patients. And uh, Paul, are you doing lymph node dissections in these patients? So I'm not a great believer in lymph node dissection. Uh, that's uh, uh, until I see a good survival benefit of lymph node dissection. I, I don't tend to do it in salvage patients. It's rather controversial. Uh, people will criticize me probably for that, but I don't tend to do uh, lymph node dissection. I think if you're going to do salvage surgery, what you want to try and do is minimize the risk of complications. You know, yeah. There's a significant risk, certainly in the post-radiotherapy setting, of anastomotic issues. Um, the, the, the planes are very difficult. Continence is an issue. You want to minimize uh, the risk of complications in these patients. Uh, with the use of PSMA PET, that helps me characterize whether they have micrometastatic disease beforehand. And so I don't tend to do uh, node dissections in these patients. And the other thing, of course, about the post-focal patients is they can still have uh, radiation therapy following their surgery. So I think that if that's the case, they can have pelvic node radiation at that time. Yeah. So, Paul, uh, a bunch of surgeons listen to this podcast. And um, uh, I want to ask you a bit about surgical technique. Um, your approach to a salvage prostatectomy and um, I suppose uh, maybe we could ask you to give us some tips uh, for patients for surgeons doing salvage prostatectomy uh, or maybe give us a few examples uh, uh, of um, uh, situations you found yourself in I recall you showing a video somewhere at a conference last year and it was a really very dramatic uh, case where uh, there'd been a hemi ablation and to me the anatomy looked very distorted so uh, these are challenging uh, cases so can you talk us a bit through about your technique including, for example, how you open the bladder neck and, and how you do posterior dissection and so on. Any any tips and tricks? So I, I, I do an anterior approach. I would avoid, personally, I would avoid the, the retius uh, approach, mainly because the trigone of the bladder can be incredibly distorted. So I drop the bladder. Um, the endopelvic fascia can be incredibly densely adherent on one side, and I certainly don't spend much time. If it's, if it's stuck that side, I just leave it and open up the side that hasn't been treated at both and the pelvic fascia uh, are very stuck. Again, I just leave them for a later time. Uh, I certainly make a reasonable uh, anterior incision so I, I can see the trigon. The trigon can be incredibly distorted with the bladder um, draped one way or the other. So you really need to have a very good uh, view of the ureteric orifices. Then I'll tend to uh, dissect on the side that's been un untreated, the untreated side, which is relatively normal. Go down to the seminal vesicle on that side and go quite wide. When you're doing salvage surgery, uh, you should try and release the bladder uh, quite a lot at the beginning. You don't want to be going down a deep, dark hole. And that will allow you to uh, dissect out the seminal vesicles uh, much easier. 
some of the, certainly the post-BRCA therapy for patients, for example, will often have SV uh, recurrent disease. And for that, you really want a really wide uh, dissection around the seminal vesicles. So releasing bladder laterally a lot really helps. Um, the seminal vesicles can either be shrunk where they've been ablated, or they can be very distended where, where the ablation has caused some stenosis of the seminal vesicles and they're very dissected, uh, very dilated. Uh, you can also get quite a lot of scarring around the seminal vesicles. The posterior dissection, I would again start on the unablated side. The other thing about the prostate when it's ablated, it can be very at an acute angle. So it's a bit like when you're doing a, a kidney, a lap kidney, you have to completely lining yourself up with the psoas. The rectum can be at a very strange angle, so you need to regularly sort of approach that. Then I would dissect down underneath on the unablated side and do the nerve spare or the non-nerve spare, however you wanted to do on the non-treated side, uh, then and then finally come around on the ablated side. Now, the hemolocks often don't go on, uh, so you often have to just um, cut the prostate out, literally. I would avoid um, uh, um, diathermy. I think the key thing is to really try and avoid diathermy on these patients. It will get you into completely the wrong plane and will give you positive margins. If you look at some of the series, their positive margin rate in this setting is really high. And I think that's because they use too much diathermy. So you just have to slowly chip, chip, chip away at the, at the scar tissue. And it can take quite a long time and you feel like you're bluntening the scissors, uh, but certainly don't use diathermy. If it's incredibly densely stuck, uh, then I would then release the DVC and divide the urethra, which will allow the prostate to come back out uh, into my field of view easier and allow me to come across um, uh, the, uh, the pedicle. But often I have to simply cut the prostate if it starts, the, the pedicle, if it starts bleeding, I would put a suture into control at that stage. Uh, and then once the prostate's out, it's very easy to get to the hemostasis. Um, the, uh, the DVC is interesting because if you've had an anterior ablation from a cryo or a nano knife, um, uh, that can cause quite a lot of scarring anteriorly, uh, but it can also often be unilateral. So you want to start cutting through the scar tissue on the side of the ablation rather than cutting the DVC on the non-ablated side because if you cut the DVC on the non-ablated side, you'll start bleeding. Um, so cut through the ablated side anteriorly, uh, then the non-ablated side, over so the uh, DVC, uh, and then dissect out the urethra at the end, uh, which is what I do. Right. And then, then you often have to reconstruct the bladder, and I do lateral plication. I always do um, a two-layer Rocco suture. Um, I, there was some concern about uh, maybe causing fistulae, but I don't find that the case in the ablation, to be honest, because that there's a lot of scar tissue, and I don't think I don't think there's an issue about getting rectal injury. We haven't had touch work any rectal injuries, and then the anastomosis is fairly standard. I haven't had leaks from the post hyphu anastomosis. Really, I get leaks in the post radiotherapy patients, and that's for a number of reasons. The tissue can be very avascular, which stops healing. Um, also, uh, the worst case scenario in the post-radiotherapy is the bladder just doesn't move down to the urethra, and that is one of the most uh, difficult situations to, to overcome. Um, but uh, post-focal, the anastomosis hasn't been a problem. Are there any techniques uh, that you use, Paul, to try and improve continence rates? So are there any, do you use any suspension sutures or anything special that you do to, to try and help with that? So I'm a big believer in urethral length. So if you look at the MR, we measure our urethral length on everybody. And we've just 
finished a, a paper showing that if your urethral length, uh, certainly in the post-radiation setting, is less than 10 millimeters, these patients are going to be much, much more likely to be incontinent. And that, that's one of the really helpful things when you're counseling patients is to measure their urethral length. They come in, they've got a long urethral length, they're much more likely to be continent. I believe in very, very um, uh, strong preservation of urethral length with uh, indenting into the prostate if possible. For some, some of the post-brachy patients, they can have disease at the base. And so that's not an issue about going really tight at the urethra. I tend to like to leave, uh, I go very high, like a veil approach if you can, if the ablation is okay. And uh, having watched or listened to your last podcast, I've started to do uh, a suspension <laughs> Oh, Jim Porter would be very happy to hear that. His little randomized trial is getting great attention. I thought that was great. I thought that was great. And Paul, you you had a fantastic paper in European Neurology last year looking at functional and oncological outcomes after robotic prostatectomy uh, following vocal therapy. Can you tell us about that paper? So, so we were delighted with the, um, the continence outcomes. Uh, we've also just finished a, a, a trial called the RAF trial, which has uh, got a lot more detail on the PROMs and functional outcomes. But PAD rate was very good. Uh, we were delighted with that. Um, uh, cancer outcomes broke themselves down into where, where men recur. So patients who have focal therapy can have an in-field recurrence or an out-of-field recurrence. And they tend to be quite different scenarios. So if you have an in-field recurrence, and there can be a number of reasons why that may be the case. Those patients tend to be do a lot worse oncologically than patients with an out-of-field recurrence. Out-of-field recurrences tend to occur quite late, and is, is a de novo new tumor. And biochemical recurrence rates are much lower on those. Uh, so if you see a patient with an in-field recurrence, uh, we tend to uh, counsel them to say they're much more likely to have or need post-op radiation, whereas out-of-field recurrence... Uh, they're much more likely to be cured from from uh, radical prostatectomy alone. So back to patients. Potency outcomes is very much dependent on what their potency was like before the surgery. So we found in in the trial only about forty percent of patients uh, could have penetrative intercourse before their salvage prostatectomy, and just um, about a third of men maintained their erections long term. So potency outcomes were nowhere near as good as uh, you would expect in a primary setting, but continence rates were were good. So, Paul, um, uh, in your training at UCL, of course, who, uh, who've contributed so much pivotal work in focal therapy, you got exposed to a number of different focal therapy technologies. And that, that's one of the interesting areas of focal therapy is the technologies have evolved, whether it's, it's HIFU or nano knife or focal radiation, cryotherapy, etc. Um, so what, what are your comments on doing salvage surgery after the variety of ways in which focal therapy uh, or ablative therapies are delivered. You know, when, when you're coming into a theater in the morning and you think you've got two ro- salvage prostatectomies on, uh, one's had technology A uh, to ablate it, the other's had technology B. Which one do you do? You sort of think, oh, yes, you know, this is going to be a tough one. So, uh, well, it's interesting. So, so the technologies uh, are often um, given for different tumor locations. So, needle-based therapies tend to be given for anterior tumors. So, the nano knife or the cryo tends to be anteriorly. And so the posterior dissection is much easier. If you've had cryo to a peripheral zone tumor, that's probably one of the hardest uh, therapies to salvage. You get a hell of a you get a lot of tissue reaction around the cryo. Um, but if it's anterior cryo, it's not too much of a problem. Um, so the posterior dissection, the rect- dissection of the rectum is not so normally a problem. Nano knife seems to have the least uh, uh, effect if it's given in the correct manner. 
Um, uh, HIFU often is given for posterior tumors, is rarely given for anterior tumors. Uh, and again, you get to learn your focal therapist. So there is, whenever you're doing salvage surgery, whether it's after brachy, cryo, HIFU, uh, it's given in a very different way. So for example, after brachy, uh, we did one last week post brachy, and it was a dream. It was just like a primary prostatectomy. There were no seeds outside the prostate. Uh, whereas other ones, it's like uh, shot everywhere. So um, you learn a lot about your focal therapist, and um, uh, some, some focal therapists give quite a tight ablation, and therefore it has less effect. Some give a much larger ablation. Um, but cryo probably gives the worst uh, or the most difficult fibrosis around the prostate, but as long as it's given anteriorly, it's not a problem. Nano gives the least periprosthetic reaction. HIFU uh, does give quite a lot of periprostatic fibrosis but as long as uh, there's a significant volume of prostate left it's not too bad so once you go less than 10 cc it does get pretty hard uh, to, to salvage those patients yeah i've seen you do a, a case where you know it's like the, the whole interior of the prostate on one side was kind of obliterated you, you know that you're almost yeah. out to just a capsule and 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 transition zone and peripheral zone are kind of all gone there's this big gaping cavity and presumably energy effect around it that that must be quite challenging in some circumstances um can can you think of some some technical um situations that have been very very challenging uh, i suppose again trying to share your experience with others who are approaching these types of cases where the the, the mr might look quite scary because of the almost obliteration of the uh, half of the prostate so the mrs look sometimes uh, dare i say it, more scary than the surgery itself actually so um the mrs look really horrible posteriorly because the fibrosis looks like this black area um uh, and it can be really really thick but the key thing is, posteriorly is is never use diathermy posteriorly never use blunt dissection because blunt dissection will take you through the wall of the rectum because that's the, the thinnest area. You just need to be confident and cut through the scar tissue. So that would be the one thing. When I started, I was trying to do lots of blunt dissection posteriorly. That's exactly what you don't want to do. You want to be confident and you want to cut and you don't want to do use any diathermy. Some of the, sometimes there's a problem. Um, the cavities are so big, the uh, balloon of the catheter falls down into the prostate which, into the prostatic cavity, which can be very difficult. A bit like a HOLEP, to be honest. Some of the HOLEPs, the, the balloons can uh, can disappear. The other thing that you often find with the post-focal, you're all setting up for a complicated operation and you can't even get the catheter in. So I would say it's because they often have uh, strictures and they also have cavities posteriorly that the, 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 the catheter can't get in. So you always, always need to have a flexi-scope available uh, it, it's always a bit embarrassing. You're, you're setting up to do this salvage prostatectomy. We can't even get the catheter in. Um, but uh, you've got to have a flexi-scope ready, guide where it goes in very easily. But it's just the, 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 the catheter end is getting caught in a cavity in the prostate. And the key thing is it's a bit like kidney surgery. If it's difficult in one area, you just go somewhere else. Yeah. So you need to be adaptable. If you're doing primary prostatectomy, you're used to doing in, in a very step, step, step. And you can't be like that in, in salvage prostatectomy. You need to go from one part to the other to another. Um, uh, and I would say one of the key things I would do is if it's all stuck on one side, you can go right underneath the prostate, right to the apex, all on one side, and just leave the pedicle and the prostate stuck on the other side. So, uh, and then I would say be adaptable and dissect where you can and come back to other areas later on if you can't, can't do them. 
go yeah. from known to unknown. Which yeah, is a, I totally a agree with you. And like you, like you said earlier about the, the going to the DVC uh, sometimes earlier than you might, and I've certainly been in that situation post-salvage. Nearly all of my salvages are post-hold gland uh, therapy, mostly radiation therapy. Um, and I think it's the seed brachytherapy that uh, provides me with the, the, the most sort of um, predicted uh, difficulty uh, compared to external beam uh, or even HDR. I used to worry about HDR brachy because they we have had a bunch of them over the years that have had a lot of urethral strictures already uh, but in yeah. fact i think it's uh, for me it's the fact that um, uh, the ones that have failed after ldr uh, seed brachytherapy tend to have seeds well well outside the prostate and um, that's why they fail but these seeds are therefore in the pelvic floor they're in the endopelvic fascia they're in the perirectal space um, and and um, uh, sharing some of my um, uh, bruising experiences with salvage prostatectomy over the years and you and i've just written a, a paper together about yeah. our, our shared experience with um, with rafael sanchez in paris and so on but uh, and it's very nice to share these experiences but beware the patient with rectal symptoms i think um uh, after a prior a primary treatment to the prostate you know the patient who has rectal bleeding or rectal irritation and so on you know that perhaps has had a, a scope showing radiation proctitis but i think if they have a lot of rectal symptoms it's a sign that that posterior plane is going to be challenging especially after seed brachytherapy um, and and you'll sometimes get that heads up on the on a, on a ct or a, an mr beforehand you'll see those seeds and i think you have to be uh, very careful um, because that rectum will be very unforgiving, as you say, if you're if you're a little bit blunt yeah. uh, out the back. The seed brachy is, is, is so obviously the prostate is close to the rectum at the apex, and that's where the the most dense distribution of brachy seeds are. So it certainly makes for the most uh, scary apical dissection of any of the treatments, uh, I think. So, Paul, the, these are obviously very challenging cases, and the stakes are high. Uh, what are your thoughts on the learning curve? I mean, how you know how many primary prostatectomies did it take for you to start feeling comfortable with these cases, and what would be your advice to younger surgeons who are starting to take on these type of cases? So, in my institution, um, uh, we 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 all do separate things. So. Uh, one of my colleagues just does the radical prostatectomies in patients with transplant kidneys, for example, uh, Ben Chalicum. So I'm the only person in my department who does the salvage prostatectomy. So I would I would recommend that you 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 develop a specialist interest. I think you know big units should offer salvage surgery for patients, but I'd recommend it would just be one person who really subspecializes in in that sort of thing. I've done around 400 primary radical prostatectomies before I did any salvage cases. So uh, you need to be doing three or four prostates every week, if possible, before you're you know, doing these sort of cases. And how many uh, salvage prostatectomies have you done, Paul? Or how many? What's your What's your year like nowadays? How many of these are you doing? So I got one tomorrow, actually, and I had two, three last week. I've done around 180 salvage prostatectomies. So I mean, that's not that's not a huge amount compared to many people doing primary prostatectomy, but it's. Quite a few salvage prostatectomies. It is quite a few salvage prostatectomies, yes. <laughs> and are you still doing any kidney work? Or are you mainly no, no, focused I, on prostate? No, no, I'm a one-trick pony. I don't okay. do anything. But he always was. He yeah. always was. Even when he was a fellow here, he, he never, his eyes never went much above the navel. <laughs> he just wanted to look down into the pelvis. And no. uh, <laughs> So, so I think you can't take out the wrong prostate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I think um, you know th- those 
comments about experience are very important. I think what, what I say to people is you, you need broad shoulders uh, to be able to offer this uh, procedure safely to patients and to be able to manage some of the uh, morbidity that will still go with it. And, and I think if you're someone who is doing very large amounts of them uh, as you are, uh, then it gives patients confidence, it gives you confidence, and, and uh, you're going to deliver um, as good an outcome as is possible. Uh, and you'll be able to take those patients through any uh, delayed uh, recovery that they have and so on. So I don't think salvage prostatectomy is one for the casual prostatectomist but I, I again i don't think that's a problem uh, renew we don't find around here certainly in in australia that um uh, pay, you know people are low volume surgeons are doing salvage prostatectomy they tend to send it in uh, to high volume uh, experienced people which is the, the right thing um so um thank you for sharing all your knowledge on salvage prostatectomy and and good luck with your case tomorrow um i think as we you know as as focal uh, therapies expand and so on and especially coming out of good centers like ucl where you've trained and they feed a lot of cases to you uh, we will see more and more failures of course because that'll happen that there'll be more and more focal therapy and patients will accept that that means they may need some salvage treatments in the future and uh, and I, I you know we all thank you for sharing that sort of experience and publishing these nice papers uh, but the other thing we wanted to talk about uh, um, in, the, in the remaining few moments was um, the UK National Prostate Cancer Audit. Um, and I recall shortly after you left your fellowship in Melbourne uh, in 2011, that was on the cards. We, we'd already had uh, a prostate cancer registry very well developed uh, in Melbourne, and you had some dealings with um, Sue Evans and the team who set that up here. And then you went back, uh, and along with uh, Noel Clark and Freddie Hemdy and others, um, uh, you set about developing the UK National Prostate Cancer Audit, um, which I think is an incredibly uh, important uh, initiative. So can you tell us a little bit uh, about that, Paul, um, about the, the setup, but I suppose more so some of the... Uh, findings that you've been reporting uh, in recent times yeah so it's it's been going since about uh, for about seven years since 2013 and it uses routine uh, data both uh, hospital admissions data and ca cancer registry data uh, uh, with a few extra data items that we added in uh, uh, into a very large database that we get through the Na national cancer registry uh, uh, and the quality of the data, the completeness of the data has been going up and up and up. When we first started, there were quite a few concerns about the completeness of data variables, but those have got significantly better uh, over the last couple of years. And we also um, uh, send out a lot of PROM patient questionnaires, patient experience, incontinence and erectile function questionnaires to patients. We've got around 60,000 uh, PROMs uh, on patients throughout the UK. Uh, which is fantastic. And it's not just for surgery, but it's also for radiation patients. Uh, and uh, last year we were able to publish uh, in our report, but it's also on our website, uh, outcomes for patients having radical prostatectomy at every cancer center uh, in, in England and Wales, which was fantastic. And we were able to benchmark outcomes with regards to continence and potency for all the different Groups and they've, they've been presented on the uh, on our website. Surgeons can go in, patients can go in, and see where they rank uh, on a funnel plot against other surgeons. And we found uh, some really interesting data coming out, looking at uh, radiotherapy techniques. For example, uh, has the toxicity of prostate only versus prostate and uh, uh, node treatment? We thought that the toxicity was much higher if you treated the nodes in the national. We didn't find that at all. Uh, when we looked at uh, open versus robotic versus lap prostatectomy published in British Journal of Cancer, we found minimal difference between approach, which was interesting, 
And that was just before robotics really took off. Uh, so it was only about 40, 50% of patients who had robotic surgery at that point. Um, we've just got a really interesting data uh, finding that patients who have brachyboost have marked increased toxicity compared to external beam uh, radiation therapy, which I'm sure will have a big impact on practice. So the, the data coming out of the audit is, is practice changing uh, and is quality assuring uh, cancer services in the UK. So uh, it's very exciting, really. Wow. And so the brachyboost, uh, is that LDR brachyboost? Yeah. As per ASCEND RT trial, that sort of Yeah, so um, the rectal toxicity with the brachyboost seems to be significantly higher than external beam or HDR, um, uh, which, is, which is a very interesting finding, markedly higher. It is, because ascend RT is very interesting uh, because uh, it, it, it was a randomized trial of um, uh, external beam up to 78 gray compared with um, uh, external beam with brachyboost, and it showed re- really quite marked improvements in biochemical uh, recurrence-free survival um, in favor of brachyboost. But, um, you know, in a, in, a com- in a full companion paper, a separate paper they published at the same time, they did show GU toxicity uh, was much higher. So grade, grade 3, 4, 5 GU toxicity in the brachyboost uh, group was 15% versus, I think, 3% and so on. But they didn't sh- show so much in the bowel, uh, from what I remember. Um, so, uh, we, you know, we, we've remained impressed with um, brachyboost as a way of boosting the, the, the oncologic outcome, at least in terms of PSA. Uh, but I think the concerns about toxicity are interesting. And I think these types of registries do provide very interesting real-world data um, about that, especially if you're measuring the PROMs, you know, in a, in a judicious and independent manner. Um, so that, that is very good. You know, I think that, that these audits are very, very good. And, of course, pa- um, patients and clinicians welcome the fact that you can have um, data. Is that de-identified, the funnel plots that are published? That's de-identified, yeah. Yeah, so same here. The, the prostate cancer registry here sends us out clinician reports and you can see where you are on a funnel plot comparing all these outcomes and we do proms at uh, one year uh, epic uh, for these patients as well. So I think it's very important and it's what, it's what patients want, of course. Although, you know, you can say people want it completely yeah. identified. I want to pick my, my yeah. best surgeon and where does he or she work and uh, yeah. I'm going there. But of course, we know there are limitations in the way that data gets presented and the sort of cases that get referred to certain surgeons and so on so it's, it's not that a, a completely blank it, league table in, is the answer um, i suppose yeah it's interesting because bows have done we have our national radical prostatectomy bows audit which is going to stop soon and the national prostate cancer audit data is going to be used instead right. so uh, that's a huge check huge change it's also going to save save bows a huge amount of money um and it's also quality assured because it's independently collected which of course is always an issue yeah so uh yeah, it's a useful data source. Fantastic. Well, so it's late in the evening in London and Paul's got a day of work tomorrow, so I suppose we better when sign When was him the last off. time you were in Melbourne, Paul? So uh, Declan very kindly invited me uh, to the meeting uh, in 2013, which I had a fantastic time in the Melbourne Cancer Meeting. So that was brilliant. So uh, we, we need to come again. We need to come again. I recall. We had a Not that I'm angling for an invitation. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad. It may be a while. We're no. totally isolated. Nobody's yeah. coming in and out of Australia for a long time to come. <laughs> well, they're saying not till about 2022 now. Uh, gee, yeah. Proper travel. Proper isolation wow. down here yeah. in the colony we are. Um, uh, not that you want to come here today with all the <laughs> COVID we have knocking around Melbourne. But um, Paul, uh, so lovely to chat with you. And thank you again for sharing uh, your experience of Fantastic um, insights, Paul. It was it really is. wonderful. Um, and thank you for listening. I know you do listen to the podcast. So do you, uh, wait, I, should, I often ask this at the start, don't we? Do you listen to podcasts, uh, generally speaking? Or 
What sort of podcast so do you listen to? I'm a technophobe, so I I, uh, I don't listen to you. You're the only podcast I listen to. I had to download <laughs> Spotify to to see your podcast. <laughs> oh, we're very touched. Yeah, you've buttered us up. He can come back again, can't he? <laughs> Um, we didn't pay him to say we that. We didn't pay him to say that. So <laughs> thank you so much to um, uh, Paul Cathcart, uh, old friend, uh, a favoured fellow of ours from many years to uh, gone past, and a truly fantastic surgeon uh, working at Guys and St Thomas's in London. Um, it's been great to have you on this morning, Paul, and um, we wish you and your team all the best uh, over there with the ongoing prospective work you have in salvage prostatectomy after focal therapy. We look forward to the RAFT trial when uh, data comes out from that. And that's all we have time for uh, on GUcast today from myself and Renew. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon.